This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi, this is Women Who Travel, a podcast from Condé Nast Traveler. I'm Lale Arikoglu, and with me, as always, is my co-host Meredith Carey. Hi! If there's one thing keeping us connected to our travels right now, it's the souvenirs filling our apartments. They remind us of the places we've been and help inspire us to start dreaming of our next big trip, whenever that might be. But scouring vintage stores and markets for the perfect souvenir is an art form, especially if you want to find something that captures a meaningful sense of place or history which is why this week we're chatting to Kiana Stewart and Janet Handy to find out how they curate Black Market Vintage, a Brooklyn-based store that maps the Black diaspora through vintage wares and collectibles. Hi, Kiana and Jana. Hi. How are you? You know, surviving, waiting for my AC to come. Very hot in this room, (laughs) Um, but very excited to be talking to you guys. To kick it off, can you tell us how Black Market Vintage began and when you evolved from shoppers to collectors and business owners? So we were officially founded in 2014. Jenna and I met a few years prior to that. And I have been picking, I say I've been picking, I was dragged to thrift stores, flea markets, estate sales, picking things up on the side of the road by my mom who loved all of that. And it was just kind of our shared our shared hobby. She really brought me into what it was that she was interested in. Um, and so when I met Jenna, what had what was a hobby of mine became really like a hobby of ours. And the way she tells the story is she wanted to date me. And so she was like, well, I guess I got to go along to all these places. <laughs> you got to spend time, invest time. <laughs> <laughs> so we were investing time in flea markets, estate sales, all of those places that were dedicated to antiquity, but we weren't necessarily seeing ourselves represented on the walls, in the literature aisles, in the record bins, in the arts, the folks who were behind the counters providing context about the items in the shop. And so we felt like there's really, a, there's a void. There's a space that was missing and that we thought we could potentially fill. And it was, again, a hobby at first. We were finding things for our home collection and, and just things that we thought were really cool. And then friends were really affirming and saying, you know, y'all, y'all have a really good eye. Can you keep an eye out for this for me? I'm looking for this particular thing from, you know, the 60s. And so what was a hobby then evolved to like a mm-hmm. service we were kind of offering to our friends in our innermost circle 
And then we just had the gall and audacity to go full out and mm-hmm. to create the business that both of us really needed ourselves. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I would say that Kiana really changed my perspective on vintage. And so before I met her, it was like all doilies and old white dudes in oil paintings. And it just <laughs> I didn't see it as something that would really interest me or there was an entry point for me. And once I met Kiana and actually went to her apartment, she's also a dynamic interior decorator. And so just seeing her space and the ways that she used vintage in her space to to talk about her black, her female, her, her you know, fill in the blank identity, I thought was really, really cool. And so like, you know, Kiana said, as we were traversing these spaces and seeing that there was a lack of representation of what we look like, um, we really were just like, why don't we create that thing we wish we we had? And so that that really, that's how it started. We started off at flea markets, Brooklyn Flea, Artisan Fleas. And so it was just a weekend thing. We both had full-time jobs. We were administrators and professors at Rutgers University. And so we we really were just doing it on the side. And once we realized that there was, like Kiana said, the affirmations that this was really something that folks could connect to, it, that's when it kind of started to scale for sure. Mm-hmm. And, and it became a business. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're dating, you're spending the weekends scaring like markets and thrift stores and all that stuff. Jana, when did you realize that you were starting to develop an eye? When did you start to realize that like this was kind of your thing too? That's a great question. It was actually, so we started dating right before uh, Kiana took some students to Ghana for a work, was it a, not study abroad, but it was, it was kind of a, yeah, it was kind of a study abroad fellowship program for two months. And so this was right after I finished my, my master's in women's studies. So yeah, we started dating right before then. Mm-hmm. I left the country for mm-hmm. two and a half months. Yeah. And what happened? And I was still kind of like missing her, but also frequently the, the places <laughs> that we would go together and then finding new places. And, you know, by the time she came back, I had, you know, this corner of a desk that had all these finds that I'd kind of picked up. And I was just it's like, this looks like a thing happening here. And this mm-hmm. looks like it's cohesive. It's, it's telling a story, but also mm-hmm. it's. It's something that's fun that I can do without her, but also have her in mind while I am doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's really where it developed, where it's kind of like she gave me the tools and told me kind of where to go. And then she left me. <laughs> and then I kind of spent some time honing in my own skills. <laughs> what are some of those tools that she left you with? Because I'm curious, like, what advice you would give to somebody else who might be starting off? Mm-hmm. I think that lesson that I learned from you initially or learned from Kiana initially was that, you know, you can find pieces that speak to you. You just have to dig. And so it's, it's really like, you know, I've come from a very big military family. And so I would started to pick up different, you know, steamer trunks and different military trunks or military bags or, you know, military jackets. Yeah, I love the Letterman aesthetic. And so I once I realized where to go. So thrift stores or flea market that also, you know, she was the plug. She helped me find out where to go. Um, and then I kind of just is spending the time. And I think that, you know, I joke about the investment in, you know, spending time together, but it really is the time because the kind of work that we do is so time consuming. Mm-hmm. Kiana, did you come back from those two and a half months and be like, she figured it out? <laughs> <laughs> kind of, but you know what? We were FaceTiming so regularly that it would just be like show and tell time. Yeah. And I would be talking about my days and the work I was doing. And then she would be showing me, you know, the work she was doing, but then also these really great things that she was finding. So I had seen a bunch of pieces, but just the pride 
that's yeah. that's the shift yeah. that I saw. Like just this really tremendous sense of pride around like I was able to curate this on mm-hmm. my own. Mm-hmm. I didn't just like come upon all of these things together. This took me two and a half months exactly. to amass. Mm-hmm. Some places were hit most places are hit or miss. You know, you, you don't really know. Now we've been able to cultivate the kind of community and network where we, we know we're sourcing a particular mm-hmm. thing or someone has something. But you know, when you're just starting out, you're it's hit or miss. You're you're going into spaces you don't know what you're going to find and she had a really really tremendous sense of pride around what she found and it made me feel really good and made also really made her feel good too yeah that's for sure when you talk about creating like a community through the work and the collecting that you're doing what did that community look like in the early days when you were at like a couple of brooklyn flea markets um and were just starting out so in the early days, I mean, it didn't look, it, it looks similar to what it looks like now, just very, very, you know, like scaled back, scaled down. Um, we were making and establishing a lot of the relationships at the initial, at the initial point. So we're meeting folks, cultivating relationships, spending weekend after weekend. If they run out of bags, we're there to help them with bags. If they don't have change, we want to help you with change. Can you watch our stuff? Because we, we need to grab a bite or we need to do X, Y, Z. Um, and so there's this reciprocal relationship between the other folks who were doing similar kinds of work. We were also buying from people regularly. I mean, we'd get to a market around six o'clock in the morning to set up and load in and prepare. And we're also seeing what other people are loading in. So we're buying from vendors before they even, you know, set up and open to the public. So I would say that that network looked like a mixed community, people with with different identities, but a mixed community of folks who were collecting, many folks who were collecting about like the time that we've been alive, like folks who are really (laughs) experienced and have been doing that work for for a long time. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was, it was nice. We were, it felt like we were the youngest people. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of those spaces. Now that network is much larger, much more robust. There are a lot more people of color in that network than there were then, um, just because of the nature of the spaces that we were in. And folks now, they know us. Uh, They know the kinds of things that we're looking for. And so I think those are the the main differences. And I think being that we were at flea markets and we were doing that weekend vendor setup life, you know, like you said, a lot of older folks, a lot more men. I think that's also mm, interesting. Yes. Um, yes. But also I think there's this interesting, there's a bit about the amount, not the amount of knowledge, but maybe the amount of appreciation mm-hmm. um, for black ephemera and black memorabilia, because I, I, I'm thinking of like five to seven different vendors who we've met who like at Brooklyn Flea who were like, I didn't even know this stuff would sell. I didn't mm. even know people were interested in collecting black memorabilia. Mm. And so some of our lasting connections who are, you know, five people I can think of right now who are just like, oh, I have basements or, you know, storage lockers full of this, but I just never knew anybody wanted to buy it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, to that point in an interview with Traveler last year, Jana, you said one thing this work reinforces is just how much systems influence something as small as your belongings. When did you guys realize that something like vintage shopping could be also a means of retracing Black history and showcasing that there is such a large audience of Black people and people of color who are looking for themselves in this experience? I I think a bit of it from the very beginning, we both are educators by trade. You know, we both, you know, have master's degrees and dedicated ourselves to 
you know, the experiences of marginalized people. And so that that piece, I think, is imbued in all the work that we've done. Mm-hmm. Um, but namely with Black Market, I just think it's that's our driving principle, education. Mm-hmm. And so burying the medicine, you know, into something cool and trendy, you know, the thing that I appreciate that some folks, sometimes I'm on Instagram and I'm like, who wrote this story caption underneath this picture? There's no way I'm reading this eight paragraph caption. <laughs> but then there are folks who, who will say something, who will, you know, Keanu would put a, a caption up on Instagram and people are, it's eight paragraphs. And people are like, oh my God, I had no idea. This was the most informational thing I've ever seen. And I'm just like, hmm. So people are like, okay, all right. And it's just they're affirming. Reading. <laughs> they're reading. At the very least, they're reading. Um, but I think it's affirming because a lot of folks find a different entry point into our work because of the educational, because of the connection that they're able to make with some of the subject matter. Mm-hmm. I think I also noticed it really early on. Again, this is the business that both of us needed. And so in a lot of ways, I've, I I was and still am curating for myself. Mm. You know, we're doing it definitely for a community that's much larger. But I think at the at the the crux of this is like this comes out of a, a, a space of necessity and direct connection to these kinds of histories. And so, you know, when we were at Brooklyn Flea and we were at Artisan Fleas and maybe we would see, you know, a few black folks come by in a day and experience what we had what we had curated. It was so affirming, mm-hmm. you know. Um, folks have stepped into spaces that we've curated and the tears are flowing. Mm-hmm. They are they are talking about how they feel their grandmother in that space mm-hmm. or how that space reminds them of, you know, their auntie's home or their parents' home or mm-hmm. someone who had passed. Um, and so it's quite powerful. And I think folks who saw us and really understood the meaning of the work really, you know, went out of their way to let us know early on, like, this is this is needed. I didn't even know I needed it, but mm-hmm. I, I need it. Mm-hmm. As you were starting to grow your collection and continue to grow it now, what are some of the sort of most compelling objects that you've come across during, you know, the past few years? And maybe even more specifically, what are the most like compelling stories if you've managed to hear them attached to those objects? This is always a hard one for us because we just, we have so much. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we have so much so um, many objects um, and so this this you know anecdote I tell folks it speaks to a bit about what Kiana was saying about the time that we've invested, invested in this work we've been able to cultivate a network and so I was you know I go to flea markets three to four times a week but you know at 5 30 in the morning there's a dedicated base of collectors and vendors who are there and um, I'm at the market and this older white woman comes up to me and she's like you buy black stuff right and I was like, I, I really don't know where this is going. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what, what her angle is. And she was like, come to my car. And I was like, um, I'm still not sure, but you know what? I'm going. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I went to her car and she pulls out these two singed, you know, large format, maybe something bigger than like 28 inches, but large format photos. And they're original photos of Muhammad Ali and his first wife. And around the edges of them, they're all singed and they're not in great shape. And she was just, she explained that the original photographer, there was a fire at his studio. And so some of, there are only a couple of things that could have, that were saved in that or that, you know, survived the fire. Mm -hmm. And those two pictures were two of them. Mm -hmm. And so I was just like, my mind, and I'm a huge fan of Muhammad Ali and I I have a lot of collectibles of his. And so I just, my mind was blown. It's just like, you never know what you're going to miss out on. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is the piece of it. I I tell Keanu all the time I have, 
FOMO, fear of missing out on vintage. Because (laughs) if I don't go to a market, I'm like, I missed it all. I missed the, you know, the rarest of the rare item. I missed it. Um, (laughs) But I think an example like that, where, you know, we have these two photos, they are not perfect. And, you know, by any standard, if we were to send them to, you know, a mainstream, and I'm using air quotes, you know, a, a, you know, mainstream auction house, they may say that it's not really worth much because of its condition. But just because of the story, because of who he is, and also the fact that these photographs were like literally survived. Literally survived. <laughs> um, I just like, they're priceless to us. So, so they're up in our home. Um, and, and I think that's, that's for me, or for both of us, probably one of the most compelling pieces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. There's a pin that I bought for Jenna. It's a, it's gotta be like a three inch diameter pin, maybe three and a half inches diameter, really big pin. And it has a logo on it. And it's from an organization that her dad helped to found in the seventies, seventies in New York city called the black vets for social justice organization is still functioning today. There's still in New York city. And it was really cool to hear about this very, this deeply personal connection to mm-hmm, her mm-hmm. Um, and then find, you know, some kind of memorabilia, some kind of ephemera from that organization that is still doing work to serve to serve black vets in their respective communities. So I love that I was able I was able to find that for her and again, make that personal connection. Mm-hmm. It's something sentimental that I know she treasures that I treasure as well. But it's just it's 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 literally home. It's mm-hmm. not close to home. It, 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 it actually is home. Mm-hmm. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? Or just a horrible accident. That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to level up? For me, it's my hiking boots, which have gotten me over some pretty tough terrain. And I'm not talking about my morning commute on the New York City subway. They've pushed me to go to far off places like trekking in the remote mountains in Patagonia, wildlife spotting amid the thick rainforest of the Amazon, and climbing through canyons in the Utah desert. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. There's an available panorama glass roof, 33-inch all-terrain tires, and multi-terrain select driving modes. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior means that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 
2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I feel like so much of what you guys have talked about as the thing that really draws you in is that personal connection. And I think when people are shopping, they don't know where to start. And it's clear to me for you guys that your families and your relationship with each other is like a big driver in what you look for. What advice do you have for people who are just starting out who don't even know like what they want? Mm -hmm. The thing is, a lot of the times, like this, it's work now, but it's definitely still a hobby and still fun. But there were so many times early on where I wasn't looking for anything in particular. I just wanted to be in the kind of space because for me, that space was about exploration. It was about an exchange. It was about the the serendipity of it, like me just kind of mm-hmm. coming upon these things, these things finding me. And so it was really just about the experience. And I, I really, really love those kinds of spaces. They're not for everybody. I mean, mm-hmm. I go and I know I need to have my things to clean my hands. <laughs> I need to have an asthma pump because the dust gets to me. I just got to do what I got to do to be in that kind of space. Mm-hmm. Um, but for folks who don't know where to start, don't even know what they're looking for, I would say there might already be a connection to vintage or antiques already there that they're not even aware of. Um, Many of us have family who are still living or who have passed on. We've got their belongings. I would think about the ways that those belongings are already functioning for your family, in your home, for your respective community, whether it's photo albums, just there might be things around you that you are currently using that you can kind of interrogate to think about what your relationship is to to vintage and antiques. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one place to start. But also just think about what is it that like, where do you need decor? Like, what are the practical things that you might be able to go to these spaces? Right. Think about function. Um, Did you just move? And maybe instead of going to Home Goods or instead of, you know, taking to Wayfair or Amazon, like the big box spaces, how can you think a little bit more about sustainability? You might just need furniture and some furnishings in your space. Or you don't want to invest a lot and you just want to go to a thrift store and find something that's used because you don't anticipate using it for a long time. Um, I think function is, is really important for folks. Yeah. And I think certain things, even if you're not looking for it, it'll speak to you. I mm-hmm. think that's also why they say don't go to the grocery store hungry because then everything <laughs> speaks to you. But if you're at a thrift store, just go. I if, Even if I'm like looking for a jacket, I go to every single aisle because I just don't know what I'm going to see. Everything is always changing. So it's just, you know, maybe something really would speak to me that I just didn't you know anticipate. And I would also say be creative. So one thing that I try to do that you know, going to a thrift store. If I like a pattern, you know, I'm not really a frilly kind of dress skirt kind of gal. But, you know, if I see a pattern that speaks to me, I may use that to reupholster an ottoman or a chair or so just thinking outside of the box and and trying to see beyond what's in front of you and and maybe get a little creative. Um, One thing that Ken and I used to do early on were uh, thrift store challenges. And so we would go into the thrift store and say the person who finds the coolest thing 
for under $2.79, you know. It was gets, never that low. Right, you know, it was like $5. <laughs> it was like the $5, $10 challenge. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, whoever won get, you know, got to pick dinner or whatever mm. the case. And so, you know, challenge yourself just to have a little fun with it because yeah. it is a great place to, to explore. And it's interesting because a lot of those places, I think they get a bad rap for just being, you know, sterile or it's just it's just old or it's dingy or it's whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also see them as just... Um, havens as as these repositories i see them as really exciting and i think if you spent a little bit of time there with some preparation ahead of time particularly now given covid19 um i think they could be a really interesting space to just explore bringing up covid19 the like perpetual elephant in the room you know when you're talking about being in these spaces like it's so tactile you know you're like touching things and you know, you're like feeling the dust and, you know, the, the aisles are narrow um, and you're sifting through things. How have you been in the last few months when everywhere has been closed? How have you been sort of scratching your sort of collector's itch and like staying inspired? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good question. Yeah, I think the helpful thing is, um, one thing I realized we didn't mention is that we, in November of last year, 2019, we opened our first brick and mortar location in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. And so, of course, in response to COVID, our, our shop is not essential, even though we may, may think it might be. <laughs> um, it was closed. And so... Um, we have a lot of inventory. And so there are items, you know, we... Our previous business model, we were just online. Then we opened the shop and we were online and in-store. And then we're now back to just online. And so we almost had a little bit of a bottleneck of product because we had to stock up for the shop. You know, we have two storage units in our whole house and, you know, the shop and in the basement in the shop. And so it, it became fun to to see some of these older things that we put away for restocking and realizing like, well, we have a lot. <laughs> we have a lot of things. A lot of belongings. Um, so that, that really helped us to, to scratch that itch in that piece. But, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the markets literally just opened last week. And mm-hmm. so with a lot of the phase two through phase four openings, um, some of these locations have been able to open back up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really about, you know, being comfortable in your decision uh, to, to expose yourself potentially. But also our network really has come in handy for us. Um, folks yeah. will email us pictures. And so a lot of this now is just online. And folks will say, well, I'm cleaning out this. I finally have time to clean out my storage unit. Or I finally have time mm-hmm. to clean out the basement. Here are pictures of some things we have. Yeah. And so that way we're still sourcing. We're still able to sell new items, but also having some fun in some of the things we've, we've had already. I'm curious how you guys showcase your finds in your own home and how you strike a balance between collecting and hoarding? Not hoarding, but like being able to showcase, but hoarding. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to change the stigma of hoarding. Okay. That's that's an aside. (laughs) Um, We are... I was going to say we're walking the line, but we are not walking the line. I will not speak that into existence. We are trying our best to curate, 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 edit, edit, edit. We can't keep it all. We don't need it all. And again, like we call ourselves like best and blackest antique shop. We don't need it all. It's a curated collection, not a collection. So I think there's just always, there's just always processes of decision-making that we have to contend with. We keep quite a bit and we keep things that we don't know if we can necessarily replace. 
that we maybe this is the first one we come across. We don't know if we're going to find another one of that particular thing or if there are specific things that we want to keep for our inventory for either museum loans um, or for prop rental, we'll hold on to those pieces as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's it really is in, in all of this work, you know, we we try to seek balance. And I think that that has really been key because there are things where it's just, wow, that's pretty. I want to own the wall. It, there's no other function. You know what I mean? And so there's always a compromise. Not everything is going to be, you know, cute storage. It's just going to be something on a wall <laughs> that you like to look at. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think striking that balance, Kiana and I have a bit of a different understanding of, of that. Oh, where, we do? So, and I think that's where we try to find balance, where <laughs> I'm usually like, oh my goodness, there's 12 of those. We need to buy all 12 of them because we never know if we're going to see them again. And Kiana's like, we just need one. <laughs> so yeah. I think that also is, is the balance. I think the function piece is pivotal for us because we, in our home, you know, how are we created with some of the things that we have that it's not just collecting dust? And so one thing, an example that we call out, you know, um, a uh, 1940s Chiquita banana crate. Um, has all the metal hand forged fasteners and all that. And we put them up on two foot, like about two foot hairpin legs. And that's where we put all of our shoes when we come into the house. And so like, how can you use something cool, upcycle it a bit, but let it have a function. So then it's not, I have this crate here, but then I also need another, another space for my shoes. Mm -hmm. Or if there's a really cool radio, you know, we love like vintage radios and TVs, you know, instead of having them just in a corner collecting dust, Prop them up on some hairpin legs or prop them up on some other kind of leg and use it as a surface in your space. And storage underneath. And storage underneath. And so things like that really help us edit and, and find that balance. Mm -hmm. But being collectors, being collectors like capital C and then being co like personal collectors, I think there's a balance because, you know, there are certain things that we would want our business to own and push forward and continue to have a robust, you know, private collection. But also there are things we want to pass down to our children. And mm -hmm. so what are those things even from now that we then want to hold on to? And I think that's an even, that's a harder conversation to have because it's like, how do you not buy everything? Mm -hmm. And because of, it might be history. Mm -hmm. So I think it's all about balance and communication. That's, that's key for us because we, you know, we can have everything yeah. <laughs> and it wouldn't be a good situation. Mm -hmm. No, it wouldn't. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I know that this started as a hobby, so I can imagine it's hard now to separate work picking and fun picking because they I would assume that they kind of intertwine um but when you guys are on personal trips vacation taking a break from working on black market what are you shopping for how does what you do inform what you're picking up when you're far from Brooklyn so I don't know the last time I went on a picking trip and we were like picking for home. Mm -hmm. We're when we're when we're out picking, we are keeping in mind that like we've got our needs and we've got our space that is evolving. Like our, our home is filled to the brim, but it is also an evolving space. But we also have a shop and shop inventory. And so I think we're keeping both of those things in both hands, which is why we leave with both hands full oftentimes. <laughs> and I don't know, there are just certain things that if we're drawn to it, we always ask like, what does your gut say? Mm -hmm. My gut says, I really want to keep this thing. And it might be, might be really difficult for me to, to, to part with it. And so I'm just gonna, that's just gonna stay in our private collection. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I think, and it's funny, after just talking about balance, there are no clear boundaries sometimes. And so we'll like, we'll bring it home. Like every single thing we buy, we buy because we have some kind of interest in it personally. Like it spoke to us to buy it to us to think of a customer who might want to buy it from us. And so there is an interest in everything that we bring home. I think the key is when we do our research, that really is what helps separate it, separate items, but also our communication. And so Mm -hmm. do we need this? Do we, you know, (laughs) right now I, I love portraits. So portraits of African-American folks, uh, the earliest portrait I think I have is from the 1800s, maybe 1860s. And so, you know, at one point I was buying them maybe five to 10 a week. And Keanu was just kind of like, let's talk, you know, about what's (laughs) happening. Because at this point we're still living in a two bedroom apartment. And so it's also, you know, what do you have the space and the ability to, to do? And so it's just like, now it's, now that's a different conversation because we are, not only sourcing for our shop, our home, our clients, but also our interior clients, prop rental, like Kiana said, you know, museum rentals as well. We're, we're blessed to be able to buy things and say, man, this is awesome. And we have all these different avenues that, that yeah. we could exhibit them. Yeah, I agree. Something else that I didn't think about that often is a determining factor is price and cost. And so uh, there's an auction house that we, we purchase from when they do sales dedicated to African-American objects, history, ephemera. And there was recently a sale or an auction, and we went through the auction booklet looking for looking for things that we could potentially resell, but we weren't going with anything in mind. It was like, let's just see what's here because there's going to be some really, really interesting objects. Mm-hmm. And then I think depending on auction day and like who's bidding, it really tells us, can, is this something that we could potentially flip and make, make something on, you know, are we kind of maxed out at what we paid on the object mm-hmm. um, or on, on, on the artifact? And so cost really, really does impact some of those decisions sometimes there. Mm-hmm. I mean, from that auction, like we bid what we bid because we knew we wanted to keep all of those items for our personal collection. Mm-hmm. We may not have done the same if we were thinking we need to sell these things, exactly because we, we do care about how pricing um, and, and value is assessed. I don't want you to give away your secrets, but what are some of your favorite places to shop or places that you would travel from New York specifically just to shop them? Mm. One of my favorite places to shop is the Brimfield Flea Market. And we go usually every Brimfield show and we'll try to go around midweek um, and stay for like three days. It's great because we're also it's like a homecoming. You're seeing all of the folks that you're in communication with throughout the country. um, And folks are literally coming from all corners of of the U.S. to to exhibit their items there. So it's a it's a nice coming back to community shopping, spending a little time out of the city, getting away um, yes, I would say Brimfield. Mm-hmm. And I would say your local thrift store. And so it might be called something different, Value, Village, Goodwill, Salvation Army, you know, fill in the blank thrift store, hole in the wall thrift store, um, because you just never know what you're going to find and just play. I think that that is the biggest thing. Find a thrift store. I would say when you're driving by a store or driving by, you know, a garage sale or anything like that, stop. Mm-hmm. You just never know what you're going to find. And you're not wasting that much time if you just, you know, take a little break. 
Make sure you have your mask, but... Yeah, now... Just, okay, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mask, just, you know, mask, gloves, have hand sanitizer, stop. See what's, see what's there. See what's there. Yeah, explore. I think that's that's the biggest tip. Explore. When we travel, I think one of the, the biggest things is, like, doing the research ahead of time. So where else can we go? And so mm-hmm. even when we're up at a Brimfield where we're going there for Brimfield, there's acres and acres and thousands of vendors. You know, it's, a, like Kiana said, a week-long event. You know, we're still looking on the way up. Are there collectors that we know that we can make stops Are on the way back? Is there somewhere within two hours somewhere else we can go? And so there's just a little bit of legwork that you have to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But like I'm I'm good for whenever we're going anywhere. I'm like best vintage shop in fill in the blank. And I'm that's where I always as soon as we book the hotel or the flight, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, or the road trip in this case, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's one of the first things I'm Googling just to see, you know, what's up there. Like Jenna said, folks ask us all the time, like, how do you find your thrift store? I mean, we've many of us have access to the Internet now. And so I think use your resources to find what is, you know, in your backyard or in the backyard of the place, you know, you're going potentially. Definitely. Um, for people to shop Black Market and also follow you both um, on social media, where can people find you? Follow us at on IG, we're B-L-K-M-K-T Vintage, V-I-N-T-A-G-E. And then um, you can find us at blackmarketvintage.com. We're looking at opening, like Kiana said, closer to the fall. So just follow us on IG and, and keep up. And we're up like, like I said, our shop is in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. So as soon as we're open, everybody will know. So. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I'm at Oh Hey There Mayor. I'm at Lale Hannah. Be sure to check out the store and follow these two. They're doing some amazing work and have some really incredible stuff being sold right now online. Um, Be sure to follow Women Who Travel on Instagram and sign up for our newsletters. Links to everything we've mentioned will be in the show notes and we'll talk to you next week. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.